morning and welcome to Rising Fridays. We have a great show for you today as always. It's a little bittersweet on Rising Fridays today because even though I'm so sad not to have the one and only Ryan here with me, my grief is in some ways trumped by my great excitement to have Katie Halper here in the studio instead. Katie, what do you think of rising at the desk? Is it a little different? I feel like I have so much authority that I lack <laughs> without the desk. So yeah. I want to thank you all for giving me this uh, this opportunity. It's a good feeling. It feels almost like we should, like, sh I feel like we should start implementing new rules, maybe new laws. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to issue any laws that you'd like me to issue from behind this desk. Maybe something that would really piss off Ryan. <laughs> yeah, what could it be? No uh, IPAs. Strict no IPA rule. Yeah, or uh, wavy hair rule. <laughs> that would kick yeah. him out, right? That's okay. I actually am entirely down to roll yeah, with that Yeah, let's do it. Then I'll have to show up in a wig. <laughs> that would be great, Ryan. You know, some commenters actually think that Ryan does regularly show up in a, in a wig. Yeah, his hair does get a lot of commentary. But uh, I think we can confirm here, Ryan does not wear right. a wig. We're going to have to, like, pull at it, though, next time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is like, pull at his hair to prove it. People are going to do, like, the Zapruder analysis yeah, exactly. of the Ryan Grimm hair. Yeah. Well, today we're... We don't objectify Ryan. He's very smart. We don't, we don't work with him just for his hair. Well, it's important to clarify that because I think sometimes people do worry. Yeah. Right. Well, speaking of people with great hair, Matt Stoller's here oh, today. Yeah. He's going to be with us uh, talking about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and actually, in general, the decline of the United States military and how monopolization is a huge part of that. Then Ken Klippenstein is here to discuss new reporting into how the FBI, you'll be shocked to learn, is expanding its watch list. And comedian and writer Kate Willett will be here to discuss the long tradition of anti-work. And before we get into that, we have some news that just came in last night. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema has agreed to the Democrats' economic bill with some key, pretty key, policy changes. Sinema wanted to remove the carrier interest tax provision, protect advanced manufacturing, and boost our clean energy economy in the Senate's budget reconciliation legislation subject to parliamentarians' review, all to which House Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said was, it was basically a done deal. Right, and that parliamentarian I think we'll get into in just a second, but I liked this tweet from Hugh Hewitt, who said on Twitter that Cinema could have demanded anything she wanted, anything that spent money or changed taxes, and with that leverage for Arizona, she chose to protect the carried interest exemption for investors. Not the attends, not the border, not the country, a tax break. Hugh Hewitt is, of course, a conservative. Um, Katie, you mentioned the parliamentarian in your read just now, subject to review by the parliamentarian. That may seem like silly, wonky, beltway language, right. but in fact, the parliamentarian's review of this will actually be a critical decision maker. She's a critical decision maker in what gets passed sure. ultimately because they're trying to do this bill via reconciliation. Right. And with reconciliation, everything pretty technically has to relate to the budget. That means its budgetary impacts have to outweigh its uh, policy right. impacts or its, its non-budgetary impacts. What are you thinking um, as this heads to the desk of the Senate par parliamentarian with Cinema's approval, with Manchin's approval, and with all of their demands in it? Um, how does that go for Chuck Schumer, do you think, in the next week or so? 
Well, I think either way, it's kind of a pathetic bill, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's, it's rare the day that I agree with Hugh Hewitt. And of course, <laughs> I don't want her doing the things that he wants her to be doing on the border or whatever kind of MAGA stuff he would like her to do. Um, but I will agree that it's a pathetic thing to like die on that hill, the hill of- Carried interest, baby. Yeah, carried interest, right? <laughs> so, I mean, to be fair, she is representing her constituency, uh, which uh, by which I mean uh, hedge fund bros, right? I mean, she is delivering for them. Uh, but this is something, you know, Joe Manchin wanted to close this loophole. Yeah. And when you're someone who, as Kirsten Cinema does, makes Joe Manchin look like Karl Marx, <laughs> like that's a pretty good sign that you're a corporate show. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's obviously, I feel like Cinema doesn't even try to run from that or hide from yeah, that right. anymore. She's, She's just auditioning to be a lobbyist. You know, it was interesting though, I'm curious for your thoughts on this, how these negotiations were happening behind closed doors. We had, it still doesn't look like the White House was involved in it. Like these details were hammered out between Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin, right. knowing that they would all ultimately probably need to sweeten the pot for Kirsten Cinema. they Schumer decided to just work with Manchin behind right. those closed doors. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Why do you think that is? I, maybe he thought that Manchin was going to be more difficult ultimately on huh. a bill like this. This right. bill is because, well, and the majority of the bill, um, I think it's something like 85% of the spending in the bill, $369 uh, billion, or what, I, I might even have that wrong, um, is climate related. Right. And so when they decided to give this the stamp of the Inflation Reduction Act, it's not a it's not an inflation bill. It is a climate bill. It is 100% a climate bill. You can maybe call it a climate infrastructure bill. Yeah. But um, obviously they're doing some stuff to the Affordable Care Act in it. Um, but the Inflation Reduction Act, it's something of a misnomer. Most Analysts believe the Wharton analysis that a lot of people have been citing is really interesting. It says it'll have basically a zero effect on inflation into the late 2020s. You could see a small actually increase based on their analysis over the next few years, and then a small decrease going into the late 2020s. Pretty much nobody thinks this is going to do jack for inflation in the short term, which is why I think even for bills, calling this the Inflation Reduction Act is particularly, I mean, Donald Trump wanted to call the tax cuts bill ta cuts, cuts, cuts. Oh, I like that? that, yeah. Cuts, cuts, cuts. Sounds like Crazy Eddie, kind of. Right, but this is like, oh, this is a version, like this is the very DC version yeah. of, like we're just gonna call it the Inflation Reduction Act. It's mostly gonna be about climate, but hey. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they want to be associated with the IRA or, or something, yeah. but uh, <laughs> make it look like an exciting, uh, bomb of a bill, perhaps. <laughs> sorry, sorry to my Irish friends out there. Are you sorry? Some of my best I friends are Irish sorry. American, for real. And you know who I'm talking about, my friends, yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's not even good for climate. For, you know, the progressives are not happy with this bill. Right. When Joe Manchin gets to brag about how much drilling he's going to be able to do, all the permits that he's getting, when Exxon is celebrating it, you know, yeah. again, that's a sign that this is not uh, a, a victory for progressives at all, or for the climate, as we would frame it. Well, and as you the just planet. mentioned, Exxon, uh, last week, the CHIPS bill that passed was completely celebrated by Lockheed. And the, yeah. the media this week has been patting Joe Biden on the back, basically saying, he's back, baby. Like, here he is, right. passing just win after win, FDR, here he right. is. Um, and you, have, you wanted to talk about a tweet, actually, kind of to this extent. Right, yeah, well, so some are noting this as a, or some are framing this as a legislative win for President Biden. Uh, Jordan Weissman tweeted, obviously it's not the second coming of FDR, but as of now, it looks like Biden's first term could be on par with Obama's 
when it comes to significant achievements and with a much smaller majority. <laughs> in terms of making Lockheed Martin happy? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the next you, right. I mean it is it's Obama-esque if if the if what Obama did was sell out the American people. <laughs> I mean that's what it has in common, right? Like giving uh, being good for Wall Street yeah. uh, as opposed to the to Main Street. Uh, right. that we got that covered. Um you know, it being, it's very, it's basically the status quo dressed up as hope and change. Mm -hmm. So on that level, on that level, it is kind of like Obama. Yeah. Is that a, supposed to be a compliment? I know. Right. Yeah. Also, Obama. also all talk and no uh, action. Right. And, and by the way, the Obama era and so many different, through so many different lenses is what led directly to the populism of Bernie right. Sanders and Donald Trump right. suddenly surging. And it's exactly because of what you were talking about. So saying that it's going to look like Obama's first term, yeah. which again, like sparked a revolt. Um, Occupy Wall Street was Obama's first term. The Tea Party was Obama's right. first term. And you can get into like dissecting the origins of both of those movements, but they were populist revolts induced by basically selling out to Wall Street yeah. time and again. Um, so yeah, big congrats to Joe Biden for having an Obama-esque term. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about this in my radar, but I think, and, and I'm curious because you alluded to the progressive um, upset over yeah. this bill. Again, like this is how are they paying for the, all of the the uh, subsidies to the climate and green green energy industry, which is a huge political benefactor of Democrats. Well, in ways that do technically raise taxes a little bit, not a huge tax increase, but they do raise taxes yeah. across the board. They argue those will be paid for by subsidies for uh, electric vehicles and in the Obamacare stuff that they do in it. But it's still just like an amazing in the, in this moment of inflation. I was extremely in infuriated, like a lot of people on the right were, when the Trump administration expended all of its political capital on a corporate tax cut, right? right. And this, to me, almost feels like a version of Democrats doing that. Yeah, I mean, I get, you know, I wanted to actually quote someone who was a former cinema staffer mm. in case we needed, lest we needed some insight into what's motivating her mm. and who's benefiting from this. Um, but uh, a former uh, staffer wrote, we can only assume that she's been motivated by the money they're donating to her campaigns. And of course, she got uh, she raised more than two point two million from the securities and investment sector since 2017. And last year, she got more than one hundred forty four thousand in donations from industry groups that lobbied against closing the carried interest loophole, according yeah. to Huffington Post. So this former staffer says we can only assume that she's been motivated by the money they're donating to her campaigns. I knew she was always trying to be an atypical Democrat. She wants to be Arizona's new maverick. I never thought she would just toe the party line by throwing away, but throwing away campaign promises you made and snubbing your nose at the people who got you elected. That makes you the opposite of a maverick. It makes you a corporate chill. And this is a former staffer. This isn't like Katie Halper right. saying that. Or, or is it? Or is it? Yes, it, they are. Well, they did stay anonymous uh, because they still work in Democratic politics. But you just pulled off the anonymous source of the I century. I did. Yes, I'm deep yeah. I read it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's a really good point. And the other thing I would say just is that in a really, f I mean, the economy is always a fragile ecosystem, but when you have inflation at this level, that means it's a very, and supply chain problems and a ground war in Europe, that means it's extremely fragile. And, you know, as sympathetic as I am to, you know, making corporations, for instance, pay taxes, which the bill does do, yeah. um, 
it's, it, this is a, maybe a moment where people need to rethink some of the things in this bill. Like, not everything here is going to go over very well for the economy um, in 2022, in fall, and being implemented in fall 2022, early 2023. Um, we could be seeing something. I think, I mean, a lot of economists are pretty happy with the bill and they're mm -hmm. not worried about it, but they are messing with an especially fragile ecosystem right now. Yeah, but, and it is also worth noting that closing this loophole is something that Obama promised to do. <laughs> that uh, Trump promised to do, and yes. it's this loophole that led Warren Buffett to say that he pays higher rates and taxes than his secretary. Yep. So, thank Love you, Kristen Cinema, and thank you, Joe Biden, for uh, not even getting your party in line. Love those loopholes. Yeah, love just, the loopholes. Just love them. All right. Well, uh, more on this note uh, when I go through my radar, and that will be up next. Emily, what's on your radar? Well, I don't really care about the size of Taylor Swift's carbon footprint. Honestly, I also don't really care about Joe Biden's or John Kerry's or Leonardo DiCaprio's either. They're obviously hypocrites, but their emissions are also obviously a drop in the bucket of a on a global scale of emissions. Now, as Congress negotiates climate legislation, a report from marketing agency Yard is making big waves for pegging Taylor Swift as the worst private jet CO2 emission offender among celebrities. Yard crunched the numbers based on the Celebrity Jet's Twitter account. According to their analysis, Swift's total flight emissions for the year come in at 8,293 tons, or 1,184 times more than the average person's total emissions. While we're on the topic, Swift's spokesperson all but confirmed the numbers in a hilarious defense of their boss, telling BuzzFeed, Taylor's jet is loaned out regularly to other individuals. To attribute most or all of these trips to her is blatantly incorrect. I love this tweet. Take a look at it. You've really got to hand it to Taylor Swift's publicist because she generously rents out her jet for her poorer friends who can't afford their own personal jets to use is the funniest possible way to put a humanitarian spin on her carbon emissions. Uh, that's what one viral tweet mocked Swift over. Now, Swift, by the way, cited climate change as one of the reasons she mourned when her interventions on behalf of Democrats to defeat Marsha Blackburn's Senate campaign failed several years back. So I'm in the Michael Schellenberger camp generally when it comes to the threat of climate change. I know a lot of you probably disagree with that. Schellenberger wrote, global emissions are still likely to peak within the next decade, and the result will be a much smaller increase in global average temperatures than almost anyone predicted just five years ago. A three degrees Celsius increase is hardly an existential threat to humanity. Of popular sea level predictions on you know, the, the global rise, he added, even if these predictions prove to be significant underestimates, the slow pace of sea level rise will likely allow societies ample time for adaption. So surely it is adaptation. Surely in proper perspective, the threat of human-induced climate change does not hinge on celebrities' relentless use of private jets. So why not just ignore this entire media circus? Well, oddly enough, the audacity of our very sanctimonious celebrity class is but one element of a broader trend that's extremely relevant here. Elite climate alarmists demanding everyone else make sacrifices to their own convenience while refusing to do the same. So how are Democrats planning to fund their ambitious climate spending in the bill they're negotiating right now, which makes up the majority of that bill, which has a name about inflation reduction? 
small tax increases across the board, which they claim will be offset by subsidies, and billions of dollars in spending that, according to a Wharton model, produce, quote, a very low level of confidence that the legislation will have any impact on inflation. That model predicts a small increase in inflation over the next few years, followed by a small decrease in the late 2020s, although, again, they are not, quote, statistically different than zero, as Wharton put it. We do not need to get into the weeds of climate prediction or statistical modeling, because we probably disagree on all of that, to see clearly one important point. Why do celebrities rely heavily on private jets? It's a matter of convenience. I would probably do the same thing if I were them. The problem isn't that they emit all kinds of carbon. The problem is that they refuse to sacrifice their own conveniences while breezily expecting the unwashed masses to subsidize their neighbor's electric vehicle while paying off a trusty Honda that takes them long distances without any worries. The bill plans to massively boost the size of the IRS with the stated goal of also boosting enforcement. As the Wall Street Journal noted, quote, the Joint Committee on Taxation, Congress's official tax scorekeeper, says that from 78% to 90% of the money raised from underreported income would likely come from those making less than $200,000 a year. Meanwhile, the journal continues, the IRS knows the super wealthy, the super wealthy employ lawyers and accountants who make litigation time consuming and risky. Now, IRS allies obviously argue that's why the agency needs more money to afford enforcement on the wealthiest Americans who make it expensive to audit them. But that is simply not what the numbers show will happen. By all means, collect taxes from people who owe them, corporations, individuals, develop better technology, if only in the name of national security. But remember that, as one report found, 61% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Remember, their average savings are less than the price of one trip on private jets. Remember, both of those figures have gotten worse since last year as inflation itself worsened. I don't mind the concept of shared sacrifice, but this bill, like many others before it, is not engineered to share that sacrifice. It's engineered for the rich to pass the sacrifice disproportionately off on people whose communities and livelihoods they've already plundered in so many cases. We can debate the net benefit of the bill. We can debate climate prediction. But there's no confusion about who's being asked to sacrifice more and why. So Katie, like I said, I don't think there's a reason necessarily to, to get in the weeds and debating climate predictions or the net impact of this bill. I do, though, think it's really telling that a Democratic-led bill negotiated by Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin that will likely be signed into law by President Biden pending what we hear from the parliamentarian um, it does require sacrifices on behalf of the broader public, but you're never going to see, never going to see John Kerry sacrifice using his private jet, no matter how much flack he takes for it, because he simply doesn't care. It's the convenience outweighs the cost of the public backlash, or from his perspective, the cost of the emissions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, as we were talking about earlier, an interesting uh, element of this is you know, George Bush did fire the parliamentarian. Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah, and so I just think that speaks to how, you know, Democrats love to convince you that their hands are tied. They show up to a fight, though, with one hand, like, tied behind their back anyway, that they tied to, I don't know what you could tie a hand to. Right. Their their belt or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think that it is it is kind of laughable, these bills that present themselves as major accomplishments, because as we talked about, there's so many loopholes, because it really yep. doesn't uh, help the climate. I think that that lends itself to people being able to focus on one person's jet. 
-hmm. But of course, if you think that like Taylor Swift's jet is bad, get a load of Elon Musk's rocket ship, right? Like there's always <laughs> something you can heighten it uh, with. But I, I think that the idea of shared sacrifice is one that is often weaponized. And there is a difference, as you were saying, between shared sacrifice that like affects people of means differently than it does people without means. Mm -hmm. And so that's often just used as a cliche to justify unfair, unshared sacrifice. Yeah, and that's what's upsetting. I mean, obviously, neither of us are under any illusions about either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Yeah. I think we all know that they're you know, backed by corporations and have been for years. Uh, but what is so annoying is when celebrities and politicians moralize uh, to everyone else, but then don't have any moral credibility on there. And, and again, we know that. Like, that's why I don't care about the right. size of Taylor Swift's carbon footprint. Like, sure. we know it sucks. Right. We know she sucks. Like, we, we get these things um, in you terms of their it politics. Off. You just shake it off? Oh, Katie, you don't that care was, about it? That was Sorry. bad. Sorry. Like, just leave. I don't even know enough of her songs to make any other puns, so you're in luck. <laughs> it's not for lack of uh, desire. Man, the yeah. big difference between Ryan and Katie, Taylor Swift reference. Yeah, I mean, I, he must know more of her songs than I do. But again, like these sacrifices are always easier for the wealthy to make, whether right. it's switching to an electric vehicle um, because the person who has to drive you know, 300 miles on the weekends to take care of their mom sure. in a rural area doesn't want to make that switch yet. They're still paying off their trusty Honda. What's much right. easier for the Carey family to yeah. get into the electric vehicle space. Right. I mean, I do still think that they're, I'd rather people be hypocrites and still advocate for better policies yeah. <laughs> than hypocrites and not advocate for better policies, if that makes sense. But I feel like their hypocrisy makes them, it makes it really hard for them to not have these class blind spots uh, yeah. that would result in better policies. Sure. It's just all so disappointing. I know. I'm going to jet out of here. <laughs> sorry. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. You should jet, jet out of here right I now. I'm not even pretending to tolerate me. Oh, we will have more rising and more puns from Two Straw Katie, as I call her, uh, after this. They're paper, not plastic. <laughs> They're paper. You're welcome, world. You're welcome, planet, Mother Nature. Oh, more rising after this. All right, well, this week, all eyes were on Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and the implications it had for our relationship with China. And our next guest, Matt Stoller, points out an important connection that a lot of the public probably missed in the media coverage weeks ago regarding our relationship with China as the United States. One high-ranking official from the Air Force warned that if the U.S. doesn't get better at buying weapons, America will lose in a future conflict to China. Research director at the American Economic Liberties Project and author of The Big Substack, Matt Stoller, joins us now to discuss. Matt, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course, I'm told that you and Katie have like known each other for years, so I'm glad that we're all here for this Yeah, moment. we're trying not to make you feel left out. <laughs> yeah, I'm totally third wheeling with Stoller and Katie. <laughs> I totally want to make you feel left out. <laughs> yeah, that's the difference between me and Matt. Yeah, one of the differences. Yeah, yeah. Remember ten years ago? I'm gonna go like full Milton Friedman and defend the monopolies in this segment. <laughs> yeah, that's the price that we're gonna pay. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Fair enough. They need never the go, Never go full Friedman. Uh, but that's what we're doing. We're doing here sort of a little deep dive into this. And I highly recommend folks go and read this piece on Matt's Substack. It's called Nancy Pelosi, Chi Nancy Pelosi, China, and the Slow Decline of the U.S. Military. And basically, Matt, you're contextualizing all of the tensions over the, over the Pelosi visit in this, this context of, like, 
we're kind of boiling right now. These tensions are boiling, and something could happen really at any moment. What does the preparation of the U.S. military look like? Can you tell us how? Uh, just we'll we'll dive into the details of this, but how, on a, from a basic perspective, consolidation um, has been a force that's really weakened our military in, in recent years. Yeah. So uh, traditionally, America, you know, our military strategy, almost going back to the revolution, was you need to have a lot of productive capacity here that you can turn into like into military production, like in World War II. We made a lot of cars and then switched those factories over to tanks and so on and so forth. Um, and two things happened in the 1990s, 1980s and 90s, as you saw tremendous consolidation and offshoring of that industrial base. But you also saw the companies that were specifically dedicated to military equipment um, have a massive merger wave. So we had about 100 what are called prime contractors in the 1990s. And then the Clinton administration explicitly told them the Cold War is over, merge. Uh, and and we shrank that down to five. So that's like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, um, uh, General Dynamics, and and Boeing. And uh, there's one more. I'm, I'm missing it. But um, but if you notice, you know Lockheed Martin has two names. That's because it's a several companies together. Anyway, what happened uh, after the 1990s in this very consolidated marketplace is that weapons just got a lot more expensive and a lot worse because that's what happens when there's no competition. Uh, and there were also regulatory changes. So contracting changes, part of the reinventing government initiative under under Bill Clinton and then changes under, under uh, George W. Bush. It made it much harder for the government to negotiate with these contractors. And so they said, um, yeah, there was a there were a couple of changes. And what this article highlights is that is that now we're at a point where we can't produce enough weapons at a low enough cost that to actually sustain the military posture that we have. And this is, you know, a, a general Cam Cameron Holt, who's in the Air Force, actually just said this. And he said, China spends less on weapons than we do, but they're more efficient at buying it because they don't have this monopolized structure, honestly. And over time, China will become a better military than we will if we don't address this problem. And there are some things in Congress going on to address the problem, so it's not hopeless, but the military industrial complex that got super corrupt, there's always problems with it, but got super corrupt after the 1990s, that is actually inhibiting our ability to have a military that can actually fight at this point. Mm. I mean, I, I do wonder, though, how much questions of security now have to do with climate change. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. There's, there's there are lots of, of strategic choices, right, that we have to make um, in terms of a policy, like policies about what we're going to be doing. And I wanted to like, OK, so there's lots of things on like climate change. There's things like, are we handling China appropriately? Are we doing the right thing in Ukraine and so on and so forth? Um, Iran, whatever. Those are policy decisions that I think we can have discussions over. But there's also the like the guts of whether we actually are able to project power. Like, can we make uh, and resupply aircraft carriers? It's a different question than where to use those aircraft carriers. But can we actually do it? And that's what I was really trying to focus on, because the fact that Nancy Pelosi was able to go to Taiwan, I mean, you don't see any other country challenging uh, China in this way. And the reason is because they're all afraid. But we're not, because we have this military capacity in China knows it. Now, whether it was a good idea for her to go is a, is a different question, but we won't necessarily have that choice in the future. Like we will have to do what China wants 
if we continue to buy weapons at such a bloated posture. And maybe that's what people want, but that's we won't actually have the ability to have that policy discussion. And how has consolidation affected the security of supply chains? I think that's another really important question in terms of when we do need to uh, increase our supply of certain weapons. When we do find ourselves in a hot conflict, um, can we manufacture the right weapons, the best weapons, um, or is consolidation, is monopolization uh, a big problem there too? It's a huge problem. I mean, we have, you know, we sent a bunch of javelins and stinger missiles to Ukraine one of the biggest problems is we can't replace them. We just don't have the capacity to, to do that. I mean, spinning up the assembly lines is gonna take a few years. And so we're whatever we're sending to Ukraine, that's out of our own stocks and there's, there's nothing, you know, the cupboard will be bare if we keep sending stuff. Um, and that's a function of not having spare military capacity, which is really a consolidation story. So if you have, um, during World War II, we had roughly a dozen contractors at least for every major prime weapon system, right? So if one company was having trouble making tanks or making a certain form of, of aircraft, the government could just go to a different one and say, here's the specs, here's the technology, here's a contract, and then they would produce it. And we don't actually have that ability anymore, right? Like if if Lockheed can't make stingers, we don't have stingers, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like the consolidation is about not just pooling market power, but it's also about pooling productive capacity and often chopping up that, like reducing that productive capacity so that the firms can have higher margins. Well, when you do that, right, then what you're doing, you're running on a very thin supply chain and you can't actually, uh, you can't actually expand when you need to. And it's sort of a crazy thing to do. Like I get it with the civilian economy. It's just a bad idea to have thin globalized supply chains, but you know, it, there is some argument for efficiency. But when you're talking about weaponry, like war is a giant supply chain crisis. So the idea that you wouldn't have spare capacity and you would consolidate like the way that we've done and that we've, we have contracting rules so the government actually has very little cost data or intellectual property information about the weapons they're buying. Um, that is crazy. These are crazy choices that we've made to put power in the hands of contractors they're not gonna be on the battlefield. Like, they're not gonna be fighting. It's, you know, it, it, it it's actually the soldiers that are gonna be fighting and the government that's gonna be financing that. And we need to make sure that the power is where it needs to be to actually have a coherent military that can actually do what we need it to do. And again, I'm not arguing that the military should do one thing or the other. I'm just saying, if you wanna have like a, a policy choice about whether to stand up to China, then you need to be able to do that. And increasingly, we will not be able to. I mean, we have five or 10 years, but but like it's bad and it's been bad since the 90s. Mm. Your piece also talks about the way that uh, certain weapons or certain equipment is classified as commercial. Uh, right. Can you talk about that? Mm. Yeah, so so like when you talk about procurement, it's super nerdy and annoying and all the language is polluted. So it's really hard to describe. But one of the things that happened in the 1990s, the way that they corrupted contracting is they said um, that uh, anything that is, um, 
you know, there used to be like the Pentagon has certain ways to buy nuclear submarines, right? They get to look at cost data, they, you know, because they're the only ones that buys nuclear submarines. But when they buy pencils, they have a different regime where you, they don't get to look at the cost basis for pencils or personal computers or whatever, because it's already sold in the commercial marketplace. And so they can pretty well assume that competition makes the price reasonable. And what they did in the 1990s, and they keep worsening this over time, is, is they've said, well, commercial items that we're going to dub sort of almost anything as a commercial item, which means that the government won't actually have the ability to look at cost data or pricing on on commercial items. And when commercial items apply to things like, you know, the the C-130 military transport or, you know, large subsystems of the F-35, like they're not commercial items. It's just a way of making sure that the government has no information about what it costs. And so, you know, margins for a bunch of these items can go way, way up and the ability for the for the government to have bargaining power goes way, way down. And that's like this consistent pattern that you see on the armed services committees is to continue to widen the definition of commercial items so that it encompasses anything to the point where military contractors actually brag about the need for more commercial item exceptions. It's a it's a crazy loophole. Um, both sides of the aisle are are indicted in this one. There are attempts in the current um, a military authorization bill to sort of narrow it and close it. There's been some discussions over the last few years to do that. It would be a really good thing if that happened. Um, but that's like one of the one of the big fights in sort of the, the military procurement space. Just going to go down to Walmart and pick yeah. up an F-35. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that question, that section of your article, because you have a great line where you say they're not contractors aren't just sneaking in loopholes. They're advertising right. loopholes. Yeah. Right. And, and right. Matt, you've worked on the Hill. And my question for you is, I mean, obviously, the military industrial complex is well known to the vast majority of the country at this point, especially after Iraq and Afghanistan. People get it. Um, they know the they know how lobbying affects this. They know how the, the incentives that the contractors have affects all of this. Could you speak to how the influence of lobbying has affected consolidation? You were just mentioning how it goes on the armed services committees. Like, what does that look like um, up close when you're, you're sort of glancing at particular examples? Well, what really it's coming from a lot of the, the revolving door at the Pentagon. So, you know, officers leave the Pentagon and they know they're going to go to a defense contractor. And so they want to protect the ability of the defense contractors to do business. But also a lot of them have been convinced that that it, it's just a great honor if a, a defense company would deign to do business with the Pentagon, which is super weird, right? So they, they this there's this constant discussion on the Hill and in the Pentagon is why won't anyone do business with us? And it's just like, it's crazy because companies would love to do business with the Pentagon and they are just, um, but they've convinced themselves. It's like, it's like Walmart, right? Or Amazon, like these are huge buyers and they just tell their suppliers what to do because they have massive buying power. The Pentagon is much bigger as a buyer than either Walmart or Amazon, but for some reason, people at the Pentagon think that it's just such a huge favor for anybody to do business with them. So it's, it's a very weird mindset. Um, it's part of that whole neoliberal mindset that goes back, you know, 40 years that you see kind of all over the place. Some of the younger officers don't think that way, but you know, the the lobbying is 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 important. The revolving door, and in the way that the armed services committees. I mean, when you talk to them about any of this, it's like talking to a wall. They just sort of don't care. Um, they are they're not interested. Uh, like they they have the same attitude, which is that like 
the contract, you know, we're, we're just, um, we're lucky that the contractors are willing to do business with the U.S. Um, and they are often pro-consolidation. It's a very weird, it's very weird mindset. I mean, people get that the military industrial complex is corrupt, but what I don't think they understand is that it's undermining the ability of the U.S. military to function, right? So like on the left, you see people saying, oh, it's just pushing us into more wars and why, and that's the general approach. But it's like, that's actually not what's pushing us into wars. Lockheed is going to be fine no matter whether we're in a war or not. What's happening is it's destroying the ability to actually sustain war and sustain weapons. And so it's not that we're going to get into fewer wars, right? That's not what's going to happen if you destroy your, your military capacity. It's that the wars are going to go on longer. We're going to lose. More people are going to die. More civilians are going to die. It's like that's what happens when you don't have the capacity to produce weapons. Um, and yet you still have a posture which presumes that we can actually hold uh, certain, you know, certain geopolitical aims in mind. And so, like, that's where we are right now. I think we need to move away from the idea that the military industrial complex is simply bad and towards understanding that it's there for a reason and it's not fulfilling that mission. And what we need is for them to be building weapons that actually work, that are cheap, instead of just building, you know, McMansions in the suburbs of D.C., which is what's happening. Right, like if we're going to have an industrial policy, which is sort of necessary in the military, it should serve the military, not Wall Street. That's right. Right. I mean, I think the three of us probably disagree uh, about what the role should be of the military-industrial complex, but I do think that what's interesting about this is we see how uh, the military-industrial complex is not even functional. It's inefficient. And it's done in a way that, you know, for, from my perspective, I, it's, it's kind of funny to watch capitalism, like some of uh, market capitalism undermine the military industrial complex. Crony and capitalism. It, yeah. Well, you, I mean, that, that's an interesting tension that we have right now. And let, I don't want to overstate it, right? I mean, the U.S. government does a lot of things right that we don't talk about. Like, for example, the only reason we have a good monkeypox vaccine, we don't have enough of it, is because the U.S government funded a Danish company to build it. And that's actually true for like RNA, uh, for the, the COVID vaccines. And for like, there's a lot of stuff that we do that like a lot of alternative energy sources developed with defense money. Like it's not that it's all just a disaster, right? It's that it's, it's in a lot of it worked, that's our right? Policy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just like the policy of whether to go to war, the policy of how to like, that's those are all, we made horrible decisions like going to Iraq was a really bad decision. But the idea that you have weapons that work or don't is just a function of like it's that's has nothing to almost nothing to do with whether you go to war or not. It has to do with whether you can win or lose wars. But um, but that that's like I think we need to like reorient and just say, look, we need a military. Every country has one. We have national security interests. We have to protect ourselves. There are certain things that we need to do in the world. And let's make sure that we have that military, that we spend what's necessary and not too much because like we're way overspending and getting a lot less for it. But then that we're also making the policy decisions about what to do with our military power in a reasonable way. And that we don't conflate them. We don't say we don't like the military, so let's destroy the ability to make weapons. No, no, what we should be doing, because you know, a lot of times when you're like building a, a weapon system, you're building it in a way that like you can shoot it and maybe it won't hit civilians, but will hit military targets better, right? And or more accurately. Like, and if you screw that up, then it's just like more likely to hit civilians. Like that's a that's a legitimate yeah. like scenario. So the point is, is let's be clear about the policy problems here and the operational problems, and like let's make sure to disentangle the two of them. 
Yeah, and another interesting point there you just raised is how we're spending more and getting less for it. Right. And on that note, a lot of Republicans were really um, upset. And just like the, the, the sort of woke complaints about training in the military exploded last year when Mark Milley talked about, uh, I think it was white rage and a hearing on Capitol Hill. And I wonder, Matt, if this, this new sort of era for the Republican Party, a post-Bush era for the Republican Party, where Republicans are increasingly agitated by the top brass um, and also increasingly less beholden to corporations because they've made this sort of cultural divorce. Uh, granted, Katie and I were talking earlier in the show about who celebrated the chips bill that passed last week, none other than Lockheed Martin. Um, but you know, at least on the surface, there's that growing tension between the Republican Party and the military and even the, the contractors. So do you think that leads to any pathways for genuine bipartisan solutions to these problems? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Um, so just on the chips bill and like, just because Lockheed Martin likes something doesn't mean it's bad. Um, it's not always a bad, like, it, you know, there's, there's an industrial policy is gonna have like winners and Lockheed Martin lacks chips to, to build things. They want to build more now. Um, would, but they were responsive, to, they were responsive to the lobbying efforts in the bill, right? Like the, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm, like, I'm just putting that aside. Like yeah. Lockheed Martin is too big. It should be broken up. But like, we do actually need semiconductors. Yeah, anyway, um, the, the um, it's a really interesting question. And I think like the, when you're talking about the woke stuff, like on the right, it, one question is whether it's it's sort of like a divorce from corporate capture uh, and cronyism, uh, but it, it could be that. And I think some a lot of uh, sort of populist right wingers want that, uh, and some of them believe that in the in the Senate and House, and you see that with tech antitrust bills. But it could also be a way of distracting from mm. the corporate cronyism, right? And yes. you also see that with the tech antitrust bills, both the opponents and the proponents of those bills are using the arguments about wokeness. And I think with the with the defense contracting, I mean, the, the Democrats like Gerald Connolly is terrible, like he's just the worst. And there's, you know, uh, there's just a bunch of like, there's some Gary Peters just passed a terrible bill in the Senate um, uh, government re reform committee. Um, and but but the but the Republicans are historically like much more contractor friendly and much worse than the Democrats on this stuff. It's not the Democrats are good. The Democrats are bad. Bill Clinton did a lot of this stuff, but he did it with Republican Congresses. Um, and George Bush was terrible. And what you don't see, I think, from the sort of realignment right is like a real focus on some of these like operational areas, because there's really nothing about like, I mean, I guess you could look at Lockheed Martin and say, oh, they have a diversity, equity and inclusion policy. But like, it's a pretty long road from there to let's deal with the commercial item exception. And <laughs> I haven't seen that happen. I hope it happens. Like, I hope that the populist right, you know, actually starts to move some of the corporate stuff on its own account. Uh, and I could see that happening. I mean, I've seen arguments from some of them that this is a broader problem. It's not just these sort of cultural arguments or maybe the cultural arguments are broader than just like, you know, the way that they've been talked about. I haven't seen that. I want that to happen. I think that the arguments are being used by sort of both factions in the Republican Party. Um, so we'll see. But it really does require understanding these details. Like you have to track the details to know whether people are serious about their kind of anti-corporate rhetoric. And I think it's important to, just for Republicans to see that this is downstream of the consolidation, the monopolization. It's it's right. allowing cultural monopolization too. Of, of course, yeah, that's, from the, that's right. 
Like, of course, the, sorry, so keep going. No, no, I mean, I'm not, so again, put the policy questions aside about what kind of cultural choices you wanna make. The question is whether it's Lockheed Martin or Disney or Google, should a, should a or BlackRock, should a company that big be able to make those social choices one way or the other, right? And I think what we see on both sides of the aisle is that people don't think that, that it's appropriate for these firms to be making social decisions. Those are social decisions that we should be making as a, yes. a public, through our political institutions, through our public institutions, and it shouldn't be a function. And I don't think that the CEOs wanna be making these decisions, nope. but, they, but they have to because they, in order to, because they're monopolies, right? In, in order to gain that uh, monopoly power, you have to be a very powerful institution, which inherently comes with social power. So they would prefer not to have that social power, but they want the monopoly and the social power comes with it. And so it, you're 100% right when you say that these cultural questions, this social power is downstream from market power. And I hope that both sides actually start to get there and recognize that, that the, the social power itself is intrinsically dangerous. That concentration of power is intrinsically dangerous. My favorite woke uh, CIA moment, of course, is that Latinx woman talking about how she has like an anxiety disorder. I'm like, well, maybe it's from bombing so many black and brown people as a woke Latinx. That's, that's my uh, two cents. You think maybe that would have something to do with it? Yeah. Gives you agita. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, um, I don't have anything to add on, on anxiety. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, luckily, just, we like, did not I, book you to talk like, about that, so no pressure I on that one. I, like, I wish I had, like, the superpower of, like, sort of, like, rolling my eyes, like, five times in a row. Yeah. There's <laughs> just so many, so many eye rolls. Um, yeah, you'll get there. But, it takes practice. Someday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, dream. thank you so much, Matt. Matt Stoller, we always appreciate it. Go check out Matt's Substack. It's a great follow. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. We love doing these deep dives. Uh, we were thinking about doing more deep dives here on Rising Fridays, and Stoller seemed like a great yeah. choice. Uh, yeah. Awesome discussion. Very wonky. Absolutely. In the best way. In the best way. And we'll have more Rising for you right after this. On Thursday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren for pledging not to enforce the state's restrictions on abortion and transgender surgery. Here's what DeSantis said. We don't elect people in one part of the state to have veto power over what the entire state decides on these important issues. The Constitution of Florida has vested the veto power in the governor not in individual state attorneys. And so when you flagrantly violate your oath of office, when you make yourself above the law, uh, you have violated your duty, uh, you have neglected your duty, and you are displaying a lack of competence uh, to be able to perform those duties. And so today we are suspending state attorney Andrew Warren effective immediately. Warren, a Democrat, signed letters stating he would not enforce, quote, prohibitions on sex change operations for minors, end quote, or, quote, any laws related to protecting the right to life, end quote. The suspension overrides some 300,000 plus Hillsborough County residents who cast their ballot for Warren in 2020. He won with 53.4 percent of the vote. 
Katie, that's an interesting point. Like, that is absolutely true. He was duly elected, but so is the legislature that passed the legislation. And so if we want to make this argument that DeSantis, some of the people on the left have have made this argument that he's acting in a sort of dictatorial way, sure. he is, when he said that that uh, Warren has his, his duty to, is to enforce, quote, enforce the law, that's true. That's why people elect people in positions like Warren's is to enforce the law that they elect the legislature to pass. And there is a procedure to override for the legislature to override DeSantis's decision. And so, so far, none of this seems to be violating any sort of democratic norms that I can think of. It's Warren's right to make that call. And then it's DeSantis's right to step in and say, hey, this is the law that was passed by people who were elected by the voters, enforce it or you're out. Right. I mean, there is some, I think, gray area here because, of course, uh, law attorneys are allowed to, or prosecutors are allowed to use their discretion. Yes. And we've seen this in Florida, actually, of all places, not surprisingly, where um, Rick Scott tried to remove um, certain uh, prosecutors for saying that they would not pursue the death penalty. Mm. And of course, you know, I think you and I sit on different sides of this issue. Of the death so, penalty? Oh, no. I was going to say, because I'm probably yeah, yeah, on no, your side yeah, yeah, of the death penalty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, of uh, abortion. Yes. But I do think, so I'm obviously inclined, full disclosure, to look for how it, it's not okay for DeSantis sure. to do this, and sure. it is okay for um, the prosecutor to do this. But I do think it is legal gray area. I think that depending on which side of the issue you're on, you can make the argument for either one. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, I think that's such an important thing to say because on the conservative side, um, you know, there's a lot of reflexive love and praise for DeSantis. Sure. And personally, I think there's a lot of good reasons for that. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't be skeptical when he uh, does, when right. there are questions about whether he's overstepping exactly, his right. authority. So, right. uh, because when you get, you know, so much praise, it's much, much easier to push the limit sure, uh, right. and keep. And so that's why, if anything, you know, when you praise someone, you should be on high alert, right. uh, especially as a journalist, for anything wrong. I don't totally see it here, but like you said, um, there there are obviously arguments. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Warren himself made one of those arguments. Go ahead, Katie. Right, yeah, you could. I think you could argue overreach on either side, right? So, like, obviously DeSantis is kind of saying that uh, Warren is engaging in, in overreach, and you could also argue that DeSantis is engaging in overreach because it's not up to him, it's up to the prosecuted to determine what things he or she will actually prosecute. So Warren came out, immediately condemned the suspension yesterday. He accused Governor DeSantis of acting unconstitutionally, just as we were discussing. Let's take a look at that clip. When I know if you want to talk about the abortion ban, when I became state attorney, I put my hand on the Bible and I swore to uphold the U.S. and the Florida Constitution. And under the Florida Constitution, the 15-week abortion ban is unconstitutional. And it's not just me saying that, it is a court of law that has said that. The governor's bill has already been thrown out. Now, it's subject to other appeal, but while the governor is hoping that the Supreme Court ignores the law in Florida, I'm the one upholding the law. I'm the one protecting people's rights. I'm the only one at this moment who's actually making sure that we are following the law in Hillsborough County. Well, and to Katie's point, this is where you get into like, as laws are going through our court system, right. 
whether or not something is constitutional becomes absolutely a gray area because circuit courts say one thing, then it loses on appeal, right. and then we get into a different direction. And that's essentially what's happening yeah. here. Um, if those court rulings hadn't gone his way, I think he would have a, a much weaker case to stand on. And that may happen eventually, sure, right. which is why I feel like it's actually, if there's a silver lining to all of this or this controversy, it's that Florida has a democratic system where if the legislators, le legislature is upset with DeSantis's move, they can overrule it. Yeah, I mean, there's a, it's, a, it's always easier said than done. Right. So I think that, you know, I haven't watched that Warren clip. I'm going to double down even more <laughs> than I, because it's there's two issues. One issue is whether or not uh, DeSantis has the right to do it. And uh, the other issue is whether what the law is. And it does seem like Warren is actually the one who's following the law at this point. DeSantis is getting excited about how the, the next court is going to decide on it. Katie doubles down on straws, doubles, doubles down, down on, on Warren. Take, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, here's a quote. Uh, this is in the Wall Street Journal. It's from Tampa Mayor Jane Castor that I thought was really interesting. That, uh, Jane Castor said, removing a duly elected official should be based on egregious actions, right. not political statements. Now, what's interesting to me about that quote is it comes down to how we define egregious sure. actions. And I think there's a pretty serious argument to be made that not following a law passed by democratically elected uh, legislators is egregious, whatever the politics of it are. If it's a death penalty law, if it's a welfare law, whatever yeah. it is, you can make a pretty clear argument, I think, that declining to enforce a law passed by people elected by the people of Florida from the position of a prosecutor is egregious. But to your point, Katie, it just depends on how you're defining that. Yeah. Although he is following the laws of now. So I think that it was the statement that uh, DeSantis doesn't like as opposed to what he's doing, which does actually kind of relating back to the uh, Ken Clippenstein thing. It's almost like pre-crime. How do you mean? Well, he's saying that he won't uh, prosecute certain things, and the things that he's saying he won't prosecute are things that are currently le still legal. Legally, like limbo. Well, yeah, but they I haven't been decided. They haven't been overturned yet, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's. A, no, I think that's an interesting point. Um, and again, it's like the law. The law itself was passed, and we have this like court system that. I actually genuinely think works fairly well, a lot better than it does in other countries. And in between point A and point B, it's a, it's a gray area where it's right. like, what on earth? But then again, like I guess I'm left thinking, if the legislature's upset with this, if the people of Florida are upset with this, it would create an incentive for the legislators to act yeah. um, and you know say to Governor DeSantis, you've, you've overstepped your bounds. Yeah, so, hopefully they do. Yeah, uh, and we'll see. then, maybe Hillsborough can secede. <laughs> I would do that if I were there. Uh, also easier said than done. Yeah, of course. Yes, you're right. Maybe we'll have to go with your step first. Yeah. That's funny. Well, we'll see what happens in the, the legal cases going forward. We'll see what happens in the Florida legislature going forward, and we'll continue to stay on top of the story. Of course, we will have more rising for you right after this. As she faces losing her congressional seat come November, Representative Liz Cheney has enlisted the help of her father and former Vice President Dick Cheney. Check out this ad. In our nation's 246-year history, there has never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election, and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. Lynn and I are so proud of Liz for standing up for the truth, 
doing what's right, honoring her oath to the Constitution, when so many in our party are too scared to do so. Liz is fearless. She never backs down from a fight. There is nothing more important she will ever do than lead the effort to make sure Donald Trump is never again near the Oval Office. And she will succeed. I am Dick Cheney. I proudly voted for my daughter. I hope you will too. I'm Liz Cheney and I approve this message. Uh, Katie, I know you. You're gonna yeah. need some tissue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was afraid. Katie I mean, was weeping I was silently. Weeping, yeah. I was afraid it's that uh, he was gonna shoot the cameraman in the <laughs> face, and that that's what was the way the clip was gonna end with the cameraman dropping the camera. One of uh, one of my favorite moments is Sasha Baron Cohen on his absolutely hilarious show, Who Is America? It was on Showtime a couple years ago. Got Dick Cheney to sign his waterboard as oh my God. one of his characters. That's amazing. It's pretty good. I mean, pretty good. Hearing Dick Cheney talk about you and I probably will disagree on this, but a stolen election. It's like he's just lo like uh, lording it over Donald Trump that he actually successfully stole his and Donald Trump just tried to steal it. Well, this is a, this is a great tweet actually from Sean Davis at The Federalist um, in response to what was said in the ad. Sean said, John Wilkes Booth assassinated the president and tried to kill slash capture two other cabinet members in a desperate bid to prevent the union from winning a literal civil war. Get a grip. It's not like Trump started a disastrous 20-year war right. over non-existent words. Right. I mean, it's like you could just go down the list. Like maybe Jefferson Davis was a greater threat to the republic. Yeah. I mean, I would put the Bushes honestly up there, Bush and Cheney. And as everyone knows, Dick Cheney was the like puppeteer uh, to uh, to to George Bush's marionette. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, W. I mean, the invasion of Iraq and uh, basically doing everything that Trump. Uh, didn't even try to do in some ways. I mean, Trump was less of a hawk. He was erratic. He did very responsible things. But in some ways, I mean, he was less of a hawk than Bush, and Bush has a higher body count than Trump does. So I don't think that's good for the republic. It's pretty wild. Well, yeah, yeah this is a man who started wars, saying someone who didn't start any wars, and in fact tried to sort of get us on the off-ramp in right. Afghanistan with, is the greater Liz threat. Which Liz Cheney didn't want him to do. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure Dick Cheney didn't either. Right. Um, and, you know, I would love to be in the decision-making process for this because it's amazing how, like, in their own heads and in their own little world they are that anyone thought this was a way to boost the Cheney campaign, right. was to like get a cameraman, get Dick Cheney out there, not Christian Bale, but the real, the right, real yeah, thing, yeah. Um, and get him Put out him there. Put him in a hat. Put him in a hat. Well, yeah. you know, it's very natural for him to wear the hat. I know, it's always felt so authentic. You feel like he just rolled out of bed and shot that ad. He's, he's wearing the vest? Wearing so the vest. He I sleeps in the he hat and the vest, actually. The oh, only, no, he was ranching. Well, yeah, the only the only thing we are left to assume is that he just got off the ranch. Right, he, was, he just got off the ranch. Yeah, exactly, uh, yeah. Of course. Yeah, he was well, Charlie Horse. Yeah. <laughs> That's why his voice is a little weak, yeah. He, the man was busy. Okay, yeah. The bottom line. Yeah. Shooting people in the face, which I'll never forget. And that's what he did to a friend. So imagine how he treats you if you're not a friend. I'll take you. I'll take you bird hunting, Katie. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> But this this whole clip was to set that up, yeah. so that you promised me to do that on air. We'll go up to Wisconsin. We'll we'll shoot some pheasants and maybe some people. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Well, even if Liz Cheney's time in Congress is limited, her political career is by no means DOA, or at least that's what CNN would have you believe. Casey Hunt pressed Cheney on a 2024 presidential run and asked whether Americans are quote ready. For, I can't even say it with a straight face. Ready for a woman to run things? Let's watch. They might be Democrats who would vote for a Cheney. Yeah. 
Pretty remarkable. Um, you said in your Reagan Library speech, men are running the world and it's really not going all that well. Do you think voters here in the U.S. are ready for a woman to run things? Uh, sure. Um, look, I think that um, one of the things that has been very um, moving for me over the course of the last year and a half has been uh, the reaction of women and not not just the women who've testified, although you know we've seen the incredible bravery of people like Cassidy Hutchinson and Sarah Matthews um, and Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss and Caroline Edwards. Um, it takes real bravery to stand up and tell the truth as those women have. And I think that's been really important. Based on that, do you think, you're, you think your father, does Dick Cheney want Liz Cheney to run for president in 2024? Um, Dick Cheney is a big Liz Cheney supporter. <laughs> is he encouraging you to run? Hey, listen. I mean, Dick Cheney is such a sociopath. I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't support his own daughter, but obviously politically he would. Girls can drone too. Yeah, girls can drone too. Yeah, I, what, I wonder what the women in Iraq would like to say. You know, does she want to listen to their testimony about how their lives were changed by the uh, Cheney Bush families? Do you remember those ads in the 90s? I can't forget if it was like Nike or Gatorade, but it was Michael Jordan and Mia Hamm. And it was like, anything you can do, I can do better. Yeah. And they were doing that song. And it was right. like, girls can do things better yeah. too. Yeah. I would love to see an ad of Liz Cheney, like with Dick Cheney right. pushing the button for drones. That would be great. Yeah. Anything you can do, I can do yeah. better. And that's how she becomes president. That would be great. Yeah. And that, that song, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, comes from Annie Oakley, I think. So perfect. You got the cowboy hats already on there. They could perform it. And it's great. It'd be great. Yeah. Well, and you know, there's a if that's the shot, the chaser is another clip from CNN, which I really encourage everyone to check out. Randy Kay was in Wyoming asking people if they're voting for Liz Cheney. And the responses were just incredible. So while you have Casey Hunt uh, flirting with the presidential possibility for Liz Cheney um, and putting that on everyone's radar, that wonderful thought into the universe, um, where the CNN was just like talking to actual people in Wyoming about will they vote for Liz Cheney and why not was ultimately the question because everybody was like, hell no. Right. <laughs> it's just a perfect side by side if you watch both of those clips, um, courtesy of, of CNN's new attempt to kind of rebrand. Yeah. I mean, just having Dick Cheney be part of any get out of the vote is, is a remarkable thing to do. Mm. You know, yeah, I mean, that's another great question. Like, who on earth does that appeal to? Right. Yeah, seriously. Who? Didn't work on us. Yeah, and didn't work on us. We, we are hashtag feminists. Group. Yeah, hashtag feminists. Yeah, didn't work on us. I don't want uh, Liz. I'd, I'd be okay with, I'd rather another male president to uh, Liz Cheney for president. Yeah. And I'm a feminist who believes women can be president. Just don't want that one. Yeah. Hashtag girl boss. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, enjoy if you go and check that CNN clip out on the voters. It's really funny. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see what Liz Cheney decides to do going forward. There's almost no way she's going to win this re-election right. bid. Just, right. I mean, I don't know. The Dick Cheney act could change. Could be a game changer. The guy's so charismatic. <laughs> Seeing him look into the camera. Jumps off the screen. So, yeah, it's so moving. <laughs> well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. The FBI is reportedly expanding its watch list. Ken Klippenstein reports that the FBI's watch list previously included only terrorists and convicted criminals, to now include national security threat actors. In addition, the agency's terror screening center is now the threat screening center. <laughs> well, investigative reporter at The Intercept, Ken Klippenstein, joins us now to weigh in. Ken, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. 
Now, this is a great story you have up at The Intercept. Can you break it down for us? Like, What, what changed um, that you reported out here in terms of how the FBI classifies things? Yeah, so they broadened what this uh, watch list can look at and then uh, share with other federal agencies and potentially local law enforcement to include, as uh, you said, national security threat actors. Unfortunately, that term is not defined, at least not in the documents that I have. And the documents I have are the same ones that the law enforcement agencies that are tasked with pursuing these things have. So it might not be entirely clear to them either. At no point is that term defined. What we do know is that um, what was once called uh, the FBI's terrorist screening center, as you mentioned, is now called the um, ter terror threat screening center, um, is now just called the threat screening center. And uh, that, I think, reflects the mission creep that we've seen on the part of these uh, national security agencies, um, not just since 9-11, but since January 6th in particular. Uh, mm -hmm. When I tweeted out these documents, I noticed a lot of people were replying, oh, this is more of the you know Trump cabal, the Trump coup, so on and so forth. And if you actually look at the documents, they're dated to summer of 2021. So I think um, you can surmise from that that this was a consequence of the January 6th um, response, which was to shower money resources and new authorities on the same agencies that failed to prevent it. Mm -hmm. And what kind of people could you see this being applied to? I mean, obviously part of this is that we don't know, but what are some of the fears perhaps that, that you have? Well, if you um, look at uh, a list of the um, so-called threats, it's not explicitly said that these are the national security threat actors. Um, but, you know, it seems relevant that it's in another portion of the document. They list things like gang members, like um, undocumented immigrants. Um, I mean, a whole, I mean, just kind of, and then just garden variety uh, crimes. And so um, these watch lists are very complex. And to some extent, um, you know, when I said that uh, this has been applied to terrorists and criminals, some of those groups it had applied to, but it's not entirely clear which ones or if uh, these, any of these uh, represent new um uh, you know, person groups that this is going to be applied to. So I would say that the lack of information, I mean, if Congress has been told about this, they're not doing their jobs in terms of telling the public that it happened, because um, as the documents show, this this took place in 2021. There hasn't been a hint of a um, report from any of the congressional committees that I looked at um, uh, disclosing to the public this change or what it really means. So the, the lack of clarity, I think, is, is central to the problem with all this. And were these published, publicly published documents, or were, how did you access them? Um, a friend of mine who is a consult, a longtime consultant to the intelligence community and, you know, maintains a lot of ties with that world told me that there had been a change. And I was sort of surprised by that because I said I, you know, didn't read about that anywhere. I didn't see any indication of that again from Congress. You'd think that they'd uh, notify the public in some fashion about it. And then he sent me um, this, this document that uh, describes how the um, relevant agencies are applying it. Yeah, and, and this is, I think, interesting uh, combined with one of your other great recent pieces about the Secret Service texts uh, being deleted. And there's so many questions about the threats that actually were in play on January 6th and the government's response to those threats, because now you have the situation where they're broadening categories. Um, and I think we, we talked to Glenn Greenwald on the show like a couple of months ago about how the right is now coming around to the civil liberty concerns that that the left raised, you know, in the Bush era when these definitions were being broadened to sweep in so many people with little evidence during, uh, in, in the years after 9-11. And the domestic terror 
terror label is truly being broadened um, after January 6th. Are there other changes the FBI has made or that the intelligence community has made, Ken, that are sort of in the same vein to uh, broadening these classification categories? Just in the way you see them talk about it in this way, too, on MSNBC and CNN, um, it, it's about really bringing more people into this fold. Um, and in some ways, you can argue that'll lead to more control, uh, undue or otherwise, over people. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is that um, these agencies operate in secrecy and are only oversight of them uh, in terms of what agencies are legally allowed to disclose what's going on is Congress. And so we're kind of at their mercy. And unfortunately, you end up seeing a lot of regulatory capture in the same way that you look at, say, agents, uh, you know, portions of Congress that are tasked with conducting oversight of Wall Street end up um, having a revolving door and working for them. You, much the same uh, is true of the agencies that are tasked with conducting oversight of the intelligence community and the national security agencies. They end up going on to uh, work for them and having a sort of parasitic relationship. So all that to say, um, I don't think that oversight is as strong or nearly as robust as it could or should be. Um, and in addition to that, what we've seen after January 6th, um, like I said before, was just the loosening of the purse strings and, uh, you know, really making it rain in terms of resources and money, including members of the squad and the progressive wing that, you know, historically you would think uh, would be a sort of counterpoint to these uh, types of agencies and, and um, their, you know, it, unending quest for more resources, more authorities. What we've seen after, um, to some extent, the Trump uh, Trump's uh, election in 2017, but also um, the post-January 6th um, uh, climate is, is a shift on the part of these progressive factions that traditionally have been opposed to, or at least, you know, critical of, of oversight of these agencies, just, you know, showering them in, 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 in resources. I mean, they just keep getting more and more money. I was talking to somebody for the Department of Homeland Security recently, and about the um, Disinformation Governance Board, and I, you know, was asking him what he thought about it getting shut down. He kind of laughed. He said one of the most cynical things I've ever heard. And this is a cynical crowd: intelligence officers and, and national security folks. He says, he says nothing ever gets shut down in this field. Wow. <laughs> and so he was very, he, he was very, he was very skeptical of the idea that they hadn't just moved it to some other segment of the department continuing. So that's what you see. Nothing gets closed down. More keeps getting opened up and more resources and authorities keep getting thrown at them. And I think it's very short-sighted for leftists to think that just because Joe Biden is president or just because some of the people who could be subjected to this are people who participate in January 6th, it's very short-sighted to think that this is somehow good or something that won't come back to bite uh, the precisely the disenfranchised, marginalized communities who uh, leftists uh, purport to care about, because historically that's what always happens. I mean, we see people who are activists, left-wing activists, environmentalists, um, pe critics of Israel, for instance. These are the people who are often um, swept into this. Absolutely. And that's what the lack of clarity and specificity in terms of, you know, like uh, you can go through that document and see they have a term known or suspected terrorist. What the hell is this? What is a suspected right. terrorist? Like, what does that mean? I you know, we're getting Emily's into the... Terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting the Bureau of, of Pre-Crime here, where they're right. you know trying to come up with indicators of things that may crimes that may occur in the future. I mean, you know, to to keep tabs on on criminals. I mean, at least there's the requirement that they have been um, you know prosecuted for something in the past. Now that they're moving away from that, you know, they're again they're getting into pre-crime, and that's a very dangerous direction and one that I think that a lot of these segments of the center left uh, would have raised issue with until fairly recently. And what are you subjected to if you're on this list? 
Well, if you look at it, um, the, the documents that I posted, they, it says um, not to inform the individual that they're even on it. So you wouldn't know oh. that you are. You'd be um, subjected to enhanced forms of um, monitoring and surveillance that, uh, you know, ordinarily your civil liberties as a you know, U.S. person, U.S. resident would protect you against. Um, you know, in terms of uh, travel, they tell Customs and Border Protection to uh, uh, not just, you know, keep tabs on these people, but potentially interrogate them um, in airports. There's all sorts of things. And again, the problem is we just don't know. I mean, I know what this document discloses. I don't know if there's another document that has more information about it. Congress is not doing its job in terms of, I mean, you know, there's a case to be made that they can't disclose uh, sources and methods, highly secret things, but they could give people a general idea of what the heck is going on. They just haven't done that. Hmm. Ken Klippenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you guys. Go read Ken's story on The Intercept. It's great and yeah, well worth great. your time. Yeah, and I would just say anyone who is up in arms about these types of things under Bush and Trump should be up in arms about it, no matter who's president. A hundred percent. A hundred percent, especially as Congress debates legislation that would uh, give them more power over people who fall into these classifications. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor and candidate for Senate John Fetterman, who is thankfully recovering from his stroke, has pitched himself as a, quote, blue-collar tough guy to voters, but now Republicans in the state, including Fetterman's challenger Dr. Oz, <laughs> Dr. Oz, have accused Fetterman of being a, quote, sheep in wolf's clothing and a fake populist. Dr. Oz is calling John Fetterman a fake populist. Amazing, it's ripped. According to the Inquirer, public records show, and Fetterman has openly acknowledged that for a long stretch, lasting well into his 40s, his main source of income came from his parents, who gave him and his family $54,000 in 2015 alone. Fetterman grew up, in his own words, in a cushy environment in York County. His upbringing helped him get an MBA from the University of Connecticut, a master's degree from Harvard, without taking on student debt. Fetterman now earns over $200,000 a year as lieutenant governor, and his family's assets top $700,000. All right, Katie, uh, this is actually, I know I just mocked Dr. Oz, but I do think John Fetterman deserves some mockery here, too, because credit, like, he's actually very honest, yes. right? Like, we just quoted him in his own words. Right. He came from a, quote, cushy upbringing. I have had an experience, though, where I tell people sometimes to talk about the Pennsylvania race, like, you know, John Fetterman is actually, like, pretty wealthy. Guy went sure. to Harvard. It's sort of shocking to people because he's so successful at curating a different image. Right. Well, I mean, I think that it's, it's kind of rich because, you know, so basically Republicans are accusing Fetterman of being a fake everyman <laughs> while he's running against a fake <laughs> Pennsylvanian. So I think he's still better off than, than Oz. Uh, who doesn't even live there. But I do think that this is a pretty, honestly, in my opinion, irresponsible headline. Because uh, first of all, of course, Republicans say that that undercuts his blue collar image, that mm -hmm. he has he got money from his parents. But as you pointed out, he was very open about this. He said that. And I admire someone who had opportunities. And because of that, and realized that other people don't have those opportunities, that has motivated him in a certain way to be almost like a class traitor. So I think that that's admirable, as opposed to someone who comes from a cushy background and only cares about other people who have come from cushy backgrounds. I mean, what he did with his career was he was made very little money as a, as a mayor. He worked, uh, he dedicated his life to public service. And so for me, it's, again, it's much more impressive and admirable to come from money and then advocate for people who don't have money than it is to come from money and only care about other people who have lots of money. 
Although it's much easier to do when you have something to fall back on. Uh, right, certainly. but I think he would be the first person to admit that. And right? yeah, we, we yes. just quoted him. I mean, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So, and it actually relates back to the, the anti-work uh, segment we were doing earlier, mm. which is how if you, if you have an income, I mean, this is a little unrelated, but if you have an income unrelated to having a job, a baseline, you, a baseline income, yeah. then you can pursue things that are both uh, you consider to be worthy. But in this case, you can pursue things that are good for people. One of my, and, and as things have like shifted, I've, I've definitely like changed on how I see a lot of government policies and all these things. But I will say one thing that always does bother me on the left, and that's why I think this story is relevant, is that it's very different to advocate for Medicare for all or advocate against fracking when you haven't lived paycheck to paycheck. Um, and I think for a lot of people in Pennsylvania, you know, your, your style is a, sort of something that you're communicating to voters. That's important. Sure. We know how seriously politicians take it. That's why Mitt Romney rolls up his sleeves um, and you know, tries to convince everybody he gets it. But I think that is, you know, I think voters do have, certainly have a right to know it. I do think it's relevant when you're purporting to take the mantle of the working class right. to communicate like what might genuinely be confusing to people based on all the Carhartt garb that like, sure. except Carhartt yeah. is, has been appropriated by rich people too. Right. Uh, but it's totally, I think it's totally relevant because Work, the, the, actual, the actual conversation among people in the working class isn't exactly, does not exactly the way, mirror the way the left likes to think it does. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, when you're talking about people living from paycheck to paycheck, like the people who benefit most from Medicare for all are those people. So for me, he's not a fake populist because his policies are indeed populist. And, you know, you can go back to FDR, who was probably the most populist of all in terms of um, policy. And he was extremely patrician, you know, like nothing, like leagues, extremely privileged, much more than Fetterman is. Um, you know, he was basically an aristocrat. So I think that, uh, you know, the policy is really what determines whether or not you're a fake po populist, not your personal experience. And again, what he did with his parents' uh, support was he was actually going to take over his parent, his dad's insurance company. And he instead, what he did was he like uh, uh, mentored uh, mm -hmm. orphan ch children, uh, led a program to help high school dropouts, became mayor of, of Braddock. And again, he did always disclose it. And he disclosed his parents' support actually um, and even when he wasn't required to. So I think that the reason I think this is an irresponsible headline is because it basically takes a Republican talking point and makes it look like a news, breaking news story. So one of the, the media does it all the time for Democrats, of course, but yes, yeah, I see what you're saying. Sure. Um, the, something interesting would be like, if you look at uh, minimum wage policies or fracking policies, minimum wage, depending on where it's being implemented and how it's being implemented, absolutely, probably most of the time benefits workers immediately. But it also, in different cases, will not have an effect on the donors to the Democratic Party that own those small or big businesses because they passed the cost on mm. uh, by firing people and they're still fine. Or like fracking is a good example. A lot of people will be uh, laid off, lose jobs, and the companies that donate, green energy companies that donate to Democratic politicians, they end up having more sway, they get a boost. And so it's just always, it's not always as clear cut, I think. And not that people don't say these things with the best of intentions, but it does really bother me when wealthy Democrats talk a populist game. And that's sort of why, that's my argument for why the story is relevant. Yeah. 
Sure, but again, I would just go back to the FDR example, right? Which is that you can totally. you can um, oh yeah absolutely as a populist without having lived that the the you know experience of most Americans. Hundred yeah. percent. The unemployment rate hit a historic low uh, under the presidency of the probably fakest populist ever, which would be Donald Trump. Right. Uh, I mean, it's tr- like, yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, a fake populist is probably not a great label for him because there were a lot of different things he did that genuinely were populist. Uh, but in terms of like understanding the sure, plight the of, of right, the working yeah. man, yeah, yeah, man or woman, that's a different question, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Well, that was a that was a good conversation. Yeah, Kevin. yeah. Fetterman, right. come on the show. Oh, you absolutely. Should, right. That'd be great. A hundred percent. Super, super interesting candidate. That is one of the most interesting races in the country yeah, agree, yeah. because it's exactly. Um, somebody who wants to like carry the mega populist right. m- mantle like Dr. Oz against somebody who has, I think, probably a more legitimate claim to representing the interests of working people. Sure, yeah. And I mean, uh, Dr. Oz is such a flip-flop. I mean, if you look at him, <sighs> oh he, everything changed very recently. And he's uh, trying to run on a culture war, too. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's, it's a, a, yeah. a fascinating Even though race. he was very different on trans issues before. It's oh. so odd. It's so opportunistic, but it's actually 100%. similar to Trump's evolution on those issues, too. Totally. Uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona, big races to watch, and we will be following those here on Rising Fridays for sure. And on that note, we will have more Rising Fridays right after this. Our next guest is comedian and writer Kate Willett. She joins us to discuss her latest piece on how the pandemic helped spark the slacker uprising, and why the long tradition of anti-work is inspiring workers to embrace their right to be lazy. Welcome to Rising, Kate. Hello, nice to see you. You too. So this was a really fascinating piece. Um, What inspired you to write it in the first place? You know, I actually discovered the anti-work subreddit during the pandemic and it was, you know, it was really fun to read and I just tweeted about how it was fun to read. So this magazine approached me and was like, would you want to write something on this? And I was really excited about it because I felt like there was just a lot of radicalization happening in that subreddit and it was just a, a cool space that was growing really rapidly. Take us inside the anti-work subreddit. I, I'm like fascinated if, if you can tell us and share a little bit of what you learned kind of diving into it. And then also um, one thing you write about, too, is, is how that kind of goes along in this, this historical wave um, that a lot of people forget about in terms of like the, the anti-work space. Yeah, so the subreddit, I think before the pandemic was like a a mid-sized subreddit. But during the pandemic, it's grown to like 2 million at this point. And um, the idea behind the subreddit is work abolition. And some people take that, you know, completely literally and are you know, talking about a future where we are all guaranteed what we need to survive and work is not something that you have to do to be able to get your basic needs met. And some people are in there, you know, kind of talking about things like um, just better working conditions, unionization. uh, But the most popular types of posts in there tend to be like people quitting really bad jobs, telling off really bad bosses um, or you know, occasionally seeing something really awful, like, you know, there was this one post, I think probably the most viral post they've ever had where um, someone actually passed away and it was their coworker writing about it because their boss forced them to work during chemotherapy. And, 
I, you know, I, I think this, these kind of terrible things are happening in workplaces all the time. And I think that this space has brought a lot of awareness to it on, on a pretty mass scale. Two million is a lot of people. Is this a purely online phenomenon, people just writing in a subreddit, or is this leading to uh, organizing in the real world? So, you know, I think that that's one of the valid criticisms of the subreddit is like, okay, you know, this space is is online, you know, there's a lot of people posting, is this leading to, you know, any kind of real life union efforts? And I, I talked to a union organizer um, in Wisconsin who's working with the teachers union there. And, you know, she was talking about how this type of awareness is often like the precursor to starting to organize with your coworkers in real life. Just the idea that like you do deserve more from your workplace. And, you know, for maybe someone reads the post on this subreddit and you know, they kind of get over that what Kristen Lighty, the unionized organizer I talked to, calls weaponized guilt, like this idea that you're just supposed to be happy with your workplace, that there's this like Protestant work ethic, that you're supposed to, you know, just work really hard. And, you know, if, if anything, like wanting better conditions or money is, is somehow selfish. It, and people, I think, are kind of using this as sort of like a, a self-help tool that gives them sort of like the, the strength and inspiration to actually go do that organizing in real life. Yeah, it, it does remind me a bit of the almost like Bernie Sanders saying Medicare for all. Like you have these cultural shifts or and UBI. certain things. Yeah, or UBI, but but just the the just literally repeating Medicare for all. Like you know, in the richest country <laughs> in the world, we shouldn't have people dying or whatever. Like that changes people's consciousness, and I think does lead to real life organizing. I mean, we see this with what's happening now in, with Starbucks organizing. I do think that before, you know, there's this old old labor saying, like my uncle used to say this, you know, educate, agitate, organize. And this does seem like it's the educating and agitating part, which will lead to the organizing part. Not to sound like a total self-parody stereotype. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. A sociologist I talked to named Wilson Sherwin, she compared it to like the old school feminist consciousness raising groups, you know, where people would sort of, I think the example that she gave is, you know, people, women sitting in a circle and being like, you know, instead of feeling really isolated with like the experience of having an abusive husband, perhaps it, it was like, oh, actually a lot of people are having this experience. This is something in our culture that we need to change. Yeah, this is so interesting because like, I'm obviously on the other side of this question, and I, I think it's probably both impractical and, from my perspective, I would say probably immoral, too, because I believe in the, the old conservative talking point about the dignity of work. But I, I, mean, I really do believe that. I believe there's something very dignified um, and empowering about work. That said, how, how do people on the subreddit or even in the movement more broadly deal with questions like that? Um, and I'll, I'll talk about the practicality one in and of itself because this is so... the, the Marxist quote you include in your story, Marx has that passage about how a man can be a fisher in the morning, a poster in the afternoon, and a gamer in the evening, which is so interesting because... <laughs> well, it, Marx, didn't say, <laughs> Marx didn't say gamer. That's a paraphrase from a, yes, a podcast. Yes, a modern, yeah, yeah, Jamie Peck modernized Jamie that. Peck, yeah, yeah that's, right. the, that's the... It, if Marx had said that, right. Marx prescient in many ways, yeah, not exactly. that prescient. Not that prescient. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, but he adapted the obviously the famous quote from Marx, and I'm <laughs> that would have been funny if nobody yeah. corrected me. Uh, he would be based, as the kids say. Yeah, I think. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. In some ways, Marx very based. Uh, yeah. But I am kind of wondering how the, in this, you know, we're however many years after Marx was writing, um, and in this more high tech space. 
And there is a different way that we're kind of organized in terms of the economy, in terms of our jobs, our professional and personal lives. Um, practically, how does the anti-work movement of today deal with the ways we would need to organize our economy in terms of like getting medicine, having doctors, having food, having supplies, like basic survival supplies, or functional governments where people have to work? What, what sort of ideas are they working with on that front? So, you know, I think that when it comes to anti-work ideas, the main thing is, you know, sort of pulling work apart from survival. Right. So, for example, you know, we would have a society where everyone is guaranteed medical care, as you mentioned, you know, housing. And these things are decoupled from going to work. But that doesn't mean that people wouldn't be... Um, doing things like being a doctor, you know, like there would still be doctors, there would like the essential functions of society, people would still be doing them, but it wouldn't be because they would die and starve without doing those things. So, you know, really, it's like a, a way of kind of giving workers actually more dignity, because let's say you have a boss that is sexually harassing you, for example, okay, you know, there are many people in the United States in that situation that they can't leave that job, for example, because that's that job is where their health insurance is coming from. But, you know, in a society where we had something like the national welfare rights movement that Wilson Sherwin was writing about in the 1960s, Johnny Tillman, one of their leaders was really pushing for guaranteed adequate income. So th that would mean, you know, everybody would have this kind of baseline th mm -hmm. of being able to survive, but that doesn't mean that people wouldn't actually have occupations. It's just not something that people would need to do in order to like actually eat. Right, like it frees you to pursue right. other avenues that are convenient for yeah. your schedule and your lifestyle. Yeah, right. And maybe yeah, then and, you and can work and get... Sorry, Kate, keep going. Oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, just the, like something like being a doctor, you know, people would be doing that because they actually care about taking care of other people and it's rewarding, you know. Right. Um, David Graeber, the late great David Graeber, which, who is a, an anarchist thinker, talked a lot about uh, bullshit jobs and this idea that a lot of the work that people are doing um, is actually not necessary it, it doesn't have a function that we need you know lots, lots of pencil pushing and i think like he said like up to 40 percent of people when he surveyed have jobs that are not necessary so i think the idea is like let's say we ever got this utopia you know we divide the things that are actually necessary and maybe you know automate the stuff that's that's not necessary or get rid of these bullshit jobs so people are are working but they're working a lot less and doing things that are important and I actually think it gives dignity, this kind of anti-work thinking, ironically, because it's saying that you have a dignity that's decoupled from whether or not you're employed. And that means that you can demand that people, your bosses, respect you. And that means that you get to have dignity while working. I mean, yeah, our corporate structure is very undignified, right? right. Now. Our work structure is, there's no question about it. It's very, very undignified. Yeah. Well, this is a great piece. I recommend people read it. And thank you so much, Kate, for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was Katie's idea. It was such a good idea. I love this conversation. There you uh, go. And we're so happy to have you on, yeah. Kate. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Take care. Likewise.
Beijing has announced it is severing ties with the U.S. on a number of diplomatic fronts in response to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. According to NBC, Chinese officials say they will cancel phone calls between regional military commanders, defense meetings, talks on maritime safety and on climate change. China will also end cooperation with the USA on anti-drug efforts, returning illegal immigrants or undocumented immigrants and transnational crime. All right, Katie, so you caught the story um, just actually almost as we were wrapping. Tell us what, what stands out to you here. What stands out to me here is that this is exactly what critics of Pelosi were talking about and mm -hmm. were warning against, which was that this was going to be, rightly so, seen as a provocation. This is, was going to be something that would undermine cooperation between the United States and China. Um, and anyone, you know, we were talking about this earlier with Stoller, uh, mm -hmm. his piece about how we need to get a more efficient uh, military, basically, right, so we can be prepared to fight China. And for me, um, you know, part of security is climate change, for instance. Part of security is being uh, having diplomacy, having uh, cooperation, discussions with leaders in China. And so I don't see how anyone can think that what Pelosi did makes the world any safer, makes America safer, puts us in a better position. I thought that this was stupid when she did it. I thought it would be seen as provocative. And uh, anyone, really, regardless of your political position, I think should be uh, nervous about this. I don't think this was what Nancy Pelosi wanted to happen, whereas I think if somebody from the Republican Party had done it, it would have been perhaps to goad exactly right. this response out of China. And honestly, I would have a totally different opinion on that. But given that I think this was a strategic kind of blunder hmm. from Pelosi and from the Biden administration, I think she walked into something that she should have been anticipating, but that she wasn't. Now, counterintuitively, I actually think there's an argument this is good because it shocks the United States into the realization that this diplomatic relationship, however that we want to preserve it, it's really going to be almost impossible to preserve in the short term. Right. Um, and so if we want to deal with the massive influx of fentanyl that's shipped from China to Mexico and then ravages American communities, we're probably going to have to do it without those diplomatic ties. Those are going to end sooner than later. Sadly, whether or not that's ideal, it's reality. That's funny because I see it as the, almost the opposite. And when you said it was going to shock America, I was like, oh, yeah, maybe this will be good. Now the United <laughs> States will realize that they can't just do whatever they want without provoking a response. So for me, I think that like, I don't know why, I still don't know exactly why Pelosi did this. I think uh, that legacy building, right? Don't legacy building maybe, or really wanting to get kind of the USA, USA militarism vote, uh, try to get that away from Republican voters. But I do think that it really has backfired. And I do think it's, it is funny how you and I had like the exact opposite. Because for me, the takeaway is not we can't have diplomacy inherently with China. It's mm -hmm. that we can't do stuff like this because it undermines diplomacy. And we're not going to be able to do the things we want to do, whether it comes from uh, security, fentanyl, mm -hmm. climate change, which is a huge, I mean, is a security issue. We are not going to be able to do that without cooperation with China. It's interesting because, yeah, so John Kerry has made this argument as the climate czar who goes to China and reporters have asked him, why aren't you confronting China on the question of slave labor or yeah. uh, treatment of the Uyghur Muslims, for instance? And John Kerry says, basically in his response, he's like, well, 
we will get nothing done on climate if we push those right. buttons. And I guess what's interesting about our different perspectives on this is mine is that there's no way, like the Chinese government is so sensitive now that pushing those buttons, if we want to have a leg to stand on uh, in the United States, is going to be virtually impossible. And at some point, China is going to sever the relationship anyway. But a good sort of counter argument to what I just said and something on your side is that China's economy is not as strong as some people probably think it is. It's, it's, they do need us to some mm -hmm. extent too. Right. Yeah, and I think that we are seeing, you know, with Russia, which is where, whose economy we're much less integrated with. I mean, that had mm -hmm. major ramifications mm -hmm. what we, with the sanctions with Putin. So, you know, and, and obviously Americans are paying for that. And it would be so much worse with China if something comparable to that happened. So I do think that maybe the, the takeaway from this is that, uh, you know, I, and I think China has used a lot of military restraint. But I do think that this was, this I actually think is almost a smart move from China. Because I think, to me at least, they look like rational actors who are responding to something that was very provocative. But they're responding in a way that's level-headed and not rash and not purely symbolic, unlike Pelosi. So to me, they seem like the adults in the room. Katie and I are going to go settle this debate um, out on the streets of DC. Yeah, we'll be asking, yeah. if you're here, you might see us. We're yeah. going to go ask the public. We're going to take a, a referendum a on the poll. street. Yeah, yeah, a referendum on the street, yeah. yeah. Taking it to the streets. It's coming, yeah. it's yeah. coming. Be on yeah. the lookout for us because uh, we're asking these questions. Yeah. It's just like when Jay Leno used to go into the streets. Yeah, we should do that, yeah. And you know, a lot of people, I've heard this before, they say, Katie Halper is the Jay Leno of yes. the left. Yeah, they do say that, yeah. I've heard that so many times, I can't even tell you. I know, me too. If I had a penny, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be as rich as Jay Leno. If only, if, if only. Well, that, that does it for us today. Katie, it was so great to have you here. This yeah. was an absolute blast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've only known you sort of virtually as right. like top up to head. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's great you have a full body. Yes. Not to be ableist, but right. yeah. Right. Well, no, but like you're you're more than just like you're more than just a talking head. Right. Literally. Yeah. 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 Right. So congrats on that, by the Thank way. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Good we got confirmation. Yes. Well, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're also available anywhere you listen to podcasts and on the Plex TV app. That's new, so make sure you check it out. It's been, a, like I just said, an absolute blast to be here with you, Katie. We hope you all have a great, safe weekend. And we'll be back with more Rising Fridays next Tuesday. No, I'm kidding. Next Friday. But I'm bummed. Nailed it. I'm the Jay Leno of the right. You are. Why don't people say that? Because I take up too much oxygen with my comparison. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah. now we know. <laughs>